open God's holy word at this point, shall we? At the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus, chapter 20, and beginning at verse 7. Exodus chapter 20, and beginning at verse 7. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Now this may seem uh, to be a rather simple commandment to understand but I think we're going to find as we look at it that it is a very broad commandment so that by the time we get through here tonight we'll all be afraid to open our mouths and to speak at all uh, which indeed will be a great thing particularly for a talkative person like myself thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless but taketh his name in vain I think of this commandment I'd like to start at the end the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain that is a very very strong statement expressing tremendous divine disapproval against those who break this commandment God will not hold that person guiltless we are told who takes the name of God in vain and you'll notice that it doesn't say uh, for God will regard uh, the person who does take his name as a sinner or God will disapprove of him who takes God's name in vain but it uses the word guilt God will not hold that person guiltless that taketh his name in vain in other words guilt is involved when we break this third commandment the word guilt is an extremely strong word in the Bible much much stronger than even Christians uh, who are not familiar with the biblical languages uh, might themselves think to put it in terms of reformed theology we can say the following when a Christian uh, becomes regenerated or better when a person becomes a Christian through regeneration the guilt of original sin is removed Christ's blood removes the guilt of the sinner uh, at regeneration both the guilt that he has incurred for his own sin that he or she has personally committed as well as the guilt of Adam's sin called original guilt which is imputed to the sinner as if the sinner had himself committed Adam's sin when we come to faith in Christ that guilt including the original guilt of Adam is totally wiped away through the precious blood of Jesus 
and through the imputation to the sinner of the guiltlessness of Jesus Christ. However, we must distinguish this guilt from corruption. From corruption. Even after a person has become a Christian and had their guilt as well as original guilt wiped away by the blood of Jesus corruption continues corruption is that tendency to do evil which even our being regenerated even our being forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ even our being adopted into the family of God cannot wipe out our corruption nor does it wipe out original corruption that is the um, perversion of human nature through the sin of the first Adam the Dutch language is very good here uh, it, it says that there are two aspects of original sin Erfzonde and these two aspects are original uh, guilt Erfschuld which is indeed wiped away the moment we believe in Jesus but the other aspect of this original sin is original corruption erf smet as they say in Dutch so that the position would be after a person has become a Christian they have the schuld the guilt and the erf schuld the original guilt wiped away Appreciated. but the corruption the smet including the original corruption the erf smet continues and you can see that this must be so and it also explains then why it is possible for a Christian who has been forgiven by the blood of the Lord Jesus ever to commit another sin after that we commit sins after we become Christians because although the guilt of our sin has been removed the stain of our sin the corruption of our nature continues to operate in our life and as the Belgic confession I seem to recall it's article 15 says that that ongoing corruption of the human nature of the regenerated sinner continues to produce forth all kinds of sins within us like uh, a soiled fountain so I'll say non zalige fontein as the, as the Dutch says I'm not as familiar with the English uh, of the confessional standards here as I am with the Dutch so the English may be a little different but that's what it boils down to that even after we have been born again uh, this continuing um corruption of our nature continues to produce and to spew forth our sin like a polluted fountain now you'll notice going to the third commandment that it does not say uh, at the end of Exodus 20 verse 7 that God will not regard that man as uncorrupted who keeps on taking God's name in vain it's a much stronger statement 
It says God will not hold that man guiltless who keeps on taking God's name in vain. In other words, God will regard a blasphemer of the name of Jehovah as guilty, not just as having a corrupt nature, which we all have, even after becoming Christians, but God will regard a blasphemer as guilty in the sight of Almighty God, whereas, of course, a true Christian is not guilty, or rather, has been exonerated by Jesus Christ bearing away our guilt so that our guilt is removed from us by Jesus so that through his action in taking our guilt but not our corruption but taking our guilt upon himself we stand guiltless or rather de-guiltified to invent a word we stand de-guiltified in the presence of God but you see what uh, verse 7 is saying it's saying that a blasphemer is guilty in the sight of God and not just corrupt in other words anyone who says that they're a Christian who claims to have been born again but who continues to blaspheme the name of Jehovah is a liar and has never been born again or regenerated at all but his hands drip with the guilt of sin unforgiven very strong statement and throughout all ten of the commandments it is only here in the third commandment uh, that we are told that those who break this particular commandment are guilty in the sight of God unforgiven unregenerate in the sight of God even though they may claim to be and outwardly indeed be found among the people of God as the children of Israel were to whom these ten commandments were given you see then the extreme importance of us having a correct understanding of this third commandment because the consequences of our breaking it are extremely extremely grave one can almost say this is the sin against the Holy Ghost which will never be forgiven neither in this life nor in the next life sometimes I'm asked what is the sin against the Holy Ghost well my reply is the sin against the Holy Ghost is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit it involves taking the name of God the Holy Spirit in vain um, does that then mean that anyone who has once in their life blasphemed God can never be forgiven no if you look both at the New Testament as well as the Hebrew Old Testament you will see that the true nature of blasphemy is not just say uttering an expletive deletive uh, if you hit your thumb with a hammer when trying to drive a nail into the wall which is bad enough and which evidences the corruptness of your nature and of mine but the true nature of blasphemy is an ongoing continuing indifference towards God and his holy name so that to blaspheme the Holy Spirit 
is not just, I think, to hit your thumb with a hammer and say something you shouldn't have said, but to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to live constantly and to die in an attitude of rebellion against Almighty God and His blessed name. To blaspheme against the Holy Spirit then, the sin which shall never be forgiven, neither in this life nor in the life to come, means to die unconverted. It means to have resisted the saving message of the gospel unto death and to have died in that condition. There is no hope and no forgiveness for anybody who resists the gospel unto death and who dies unconvertedly. They have blasphemed and continued blaspheming unto death against the Holy Ghost. Unforgivable sin. Now, to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, it seems to me, is not merely to die unconverted, but it also means, for the last time prior to our death, to have rejected the totalitarian claims of God and his holy name over our life. In other words, this actual sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, I am claiming, is committed before we actually die. The sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not first committed as we die unconverted. But the sin against the Holy Spirit is finally committed when for the last time in our life before we die we reject the crown rights of King Jesus over our life. And you see, this is why it's so important for us to recoil with horror at the concept of us being involved in breaking this commandment because any one of us could die any second. We're always just one hair's breadth from eternity. We continue to breathe only by the grace of Almighty God. And if a person is unconverted, he can never be sure that he has not already committed that unforgivable sin against the Holy Ghost. Because if an unconverted man dies, then it becomes apparent at that point, at his death, seeing he cannot be converted after that, that he has died, having committed and having continued to commit that sin of blaspheming against God and of resisting God and the holiness of his name and his attributes as the Lord of his life. And that's why there should be an urgency in your life and in my life as we confront men and women with a need to repent and to turn from their sin and to be converted and to receive the remission of all of their sin and the guilt of their sin through the blood of Jesus, at which point they would then stop once and for all being able to blaspheme against God unto death in the sense in which we're talking about. And because we're all mortal and we could go any second, we need to make quite sure right now, every one of us here, that we really are in a state of grace with God. We need to examine ourselves as we sit here. We, members of Reformed churches, need to level with ourselves and say, Oh God, 
if perhaps I really be unconverted yet and if I have not yet come to that place where Christ has forgiven me all of my guilt oh I plead with you this moment and you will not put it off one second longer that you will repent and turn from your sin even now as you sit down in that chair and look to Jesus and rest upon him and be saved because if you die without having done that it will then become apparent that you have died having sinned against and blasphemed the Holy Spirit unto death not just unto temporal death but indeed unto everlasting death you see then that we're uh, discussing a very grim subject at this point well now looking at the larger catechism uh, the larger catechism question 112 asks the question what is required in the third commandment thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain what does this require of us positively and again tonight we will begin our exposition by explaining what the commandment requires us to do before going on to discuss what the commandment forbids us from doing so what does the commandment require that we should do and the answer is the third commandment requires that the name of God his titles attributes ordinances the word sacraments prayers oaths vows lots his works and whatsoever else there is whereby he makes himself known be holily and reverently used in thought meditation word and writing by a holy profession and answerable conversation that would mean a behavior for which we are answerable to almighty God to the glory of God and the good of ourselves and others let's break this up and see exactly what it means it's saying that thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain means amongst other things that we must give a holy and a reverent use to the name of God the name of God I think most people who've thought a little about this will realize this whatever else this commandment thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God is commanding it's also commanding us even centrally commanding us to use the name of God with holiness and with reverence in other words we should never use God's name the name of Elohim in Hebrew or in translation the name God in English Holt in Dutch or the name of our God Jehovah or Yahweh as some would say translated Lord in English Heere in Dutch these names must never ever be used in vain unnecessarily and so if we have that tendency particularly when we lose our temper uh, to use the word God 
or Lord as a punctuation mark, a comma uh, in uh, the sentence. Um, if someone comes through the door and we say, Good Lord, you're here. We need to see that that is a transgression of the third commandment and that God will not remove the guilt of that sin if we die unconverted and with that kind of sin unconfessed. And I'm sure you've all met people, as I have too, who seem to be totally incapable of saying a single sentence or two without inserting the name of God or the word Lord into one of those sentences as in the way in which you and I should use a semicolon or a comma. And that, of course, is most obviously to use the name of God in vain. However, when we're on this matter of the, of the name of God, what about those other words that really mean God, uh, but which have changed one or two vowels or consonants to soften the word? Uh, for example, the old English Lord who would never have said, God, what have you done? But who would say, Egad, what are you doing? This too is getting very perilously close to using the name of God in vain. We need to avoid those kind of words. Or instead of saying, Lord, saying something like, Lordy me. Or instead of saying, Christ, as an expletive deletive, saying, Cripes, or Crikey. Or instead of saying, Gemini, uh, Jesus Christ, saying, Jiminy Crickets. Or in the Middle, e Middle Ages, instead of saying, By his wounds, I will bash your face in. Saying, Zooms, Z-O-U-N-D which is medieval English for by his wounds or the great Australian adjective bloody which of course is derived directly from the blood of the cross of our Saviour Jesus Christ we need to be very very careful not to use these words which indeed does involve a taking of the Lord's name in vain and you know it's when we get into this area when we get into this area that we begin uh, to realize how corrupt if not guilty each one of us is you see our savior when he is expounding this third commandment in exhaustive detail in the sermon on the mount Matthew chapter 5 says do not swear that means take the name of the Lord thy God in vain in any way whatsoever do not swear by the name of God naturally nor swear by the heavens because that is the throne of God how often we hear people sometimes even Christians say good heavens what are you doing Jesus says don't say that don't swear by the heavens because in swearing by the heavens we're breaking this commandment because says Jesus the heavens is the throne of God or another one where I catch myself from time to time what on earth are you doing 
Don't say that. Don't swear by the earth, because the earth, says Jesus, is the footstool of Almighty God. And of course, in Matthew 23, our Savior lambastes the Pharisees uh, who developed the practice of not so much swearing by the temple, uh, nor even by the altar in the temple, but by the gold upon the altar in the temple. In a way like this. Are you sure you're telling me the truth? Says Pharisee 1. Pharisee 2 would say, Oh, I swear by the temple I'm telling the truth. Oh, no, 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 that's not enough. I don't want to hear you swear by the temple. Swear by the altar in the temple. Well, all right. As true as the altar is in the temple, I'm telling the truth. Oh, wait a minute. That's not enough to swear by the altar in the temple. Are you sure you're telling me the truth? Swear by the gold on the altar in the temple. And so it went on and on and on. Until our Savior says in anguish, You hypocrite! What is more important? The, the gold on the altar in the temple? Or the altar in the temple that sanctifies the gold? Or further... What is more important between the altar and the temple? Is it the altar, or is it the temple which sanctifies the altar? And to go one step further, he could have said, and in the rest of scripture I think uh, uh, it would follow, what is more important, the temple by which people swear, or God in heaven, uh, for whom the entire earth is his temple, and which he inhabits every second by his Holy Spirit. Do you see the implication of this? You cannot say to yourself uh, that um, you can use these expletive deletives which do not actually use the name of God if they are using the name of God's temple, of the altar in God's temple, of the gold on the altar in God's temple. And so therefore, to say Jiminy Crickets, is as bad as to say Jesus Christ unnecessarily and in vain in a sentence. And one could go on and on and on going into these uh, corruptions. Of and when we're about this, let us also realize, as the uh, Catechism tells us, that the name of God must be revered not only as regards his direct name, but also as regards his titles. His titles. Who is Jehovah? He is the creator of heaven and earth. And so when we refer to the creator, when we refer to the almighty, or the all-powerful one, or the omnipotent, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, here too we must be careful to use these attributes of God with um, dignity and with respect and that's why we should be very careful not to say as they say in America I'm powerful mad stranger because really you're not powerful you're weak and I'm weak it is God who is powerful or as they would say in Dutch 
machisch or allmachtig man. Wat maak je dan hier? Meaning almighty man. What are you doing here? You see what's happening there? We are using unnecessarily some of the attributes of God uh, relating to his power, uh, relating to his omnipotence or his omniscience. And of course, if a person says, I know it all, in such a tone of voice that you can see he's trying to tell you he knows everything. He has as much as told you that he's the all-knowing God and that you, poor ignoramus, should not have disagreed with him on this matter. That is a taking of the name of God in vain. That is a creature who is not omniscient or all-knowing acting and even speaking as if he were omniscient or all-knowing or I'll fix that blighter as if you have the power the almighty power to fix him and of course exhibit A in this is Lamech Genesis 4 the first named polygamist in the Bible you remember what he said he said if a little boy as much as scratches me or if any man kills me then I will avenge my own death 77 times what's he saying I, Lamech, will rise from the dead and I will avenge myself over any man that puts me to death. That's absurd. Lamech couldn't have risen from the dead to avenge himself. And by speaking in that way, as he does in Genesis chapter 4, he is arrogating to himself and therefore attempting to deprive the almighty Jehovah of his exclusive prerogative of resurrecting and vengeance. For vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. So next time you say to a person who has made you mad, I'm going to fix you, pause and recognize that what you are about to say and what you've already thought has involved a degree of the transgression of this third commandment of you and I, the creature, trying to put ourselves in the place of God, the creator, and in making a big name for ourselves. And in this context, we should look at the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. For you remember why the Tower of Babel was built. The whole of apostate humanity in its movement away from God said, Come, let us make a name for ourselves and let us build a tower for ourselves. The first benighted nations organization uh, skyscraper, uh, the top of which will scrape against the heavens itself, lest we should be scattered. Let's make a name for ourselves. They didn't want to make a name for God. They didn't want the name of God to be downed across the face of the earth. They were not filled with this enthusiastic spirit that should have filled them and that must fill you and me, that we will not rest until the earth and the sea and the sky, yes, the very sea, becomes full of the glory of the knowledge of the name of Jehovah like the waters cover the sea. Oh no! They wanted to make a name for themselves. No. When you look at certain boxes and say, look at me, I'm the greatest, folks. 
Or when you look at certain nations and say, we are the mightiest, most powerful nation that the world has ever seen. Or the leader of another nation I can remember who said, we've chased God off the earth and now we're going to chase him out of the sky. There is something, the spirit of supernationalism in many nations that comes perilously close to blasphemy, trying to put the nation, whatever nation it is, in the place of Almighty God, without which the nation is nothing, for he who created all things peers down from heaven and he looks at the nations of mankind, every one of them. They're like so many grasshoppers under his eyes. And when that thing created tries to exalt itself and say we are the pinnacle of progress we are this and we are that then it is time that God comes down in judgment as he did at the Tower of Babel to see what they are doing and twists the tongues of mankind and confuses them and scatters them apart and brings them to naught for their blasphemous sin of thinking that they, creatures who could only live and move and have their very being in the name of God, could ever exist for one second independently of his sovereign maintaining power. And oh, if you have that attitude in yourself, in your nation, in your race, in your sex, uh, in your language, in your abilities, in the size of your bank balance, in the number of degrees that you have, in your I'm reformed and not like these miserable, horrible arguments. Be careful. Be careful. Let him that glories, glory in the Lord. If a man would boast, God forbid that I should boast, save in the cross of my Savior Jesus Christ. Folks, we have nothing else to boast about other than the Lord Jesus. There's not a single one of you sitting here tonight who does not have a gift which you have not received from God. Let him then, the giver, be given the glory. And let you and I toss our golden crowns at the feet of him who is the Lord of all. For he, the Lamb, he is worthy to receive praise and adoration and glory and Lord and dominion and we having done everything oh, with the gifts of grace that he has given us having done everything we are nothing more than unprofitable servants so we need to treat the titles and the attributes of God with reverence but third we must also learn to teach the to um, treat the ordinances of God with reverence. The ordinances of God. We could say a great deal about this, but that which God has ordained, let's limit it to sacrament, shall we, in the church of God. We must be careful not to indulge in jesting about the ordinances. Uh, like this joke of the discussion between the uh, Negro uh, Baptist and the Negro Presbyterian preacher in the United States, where one says to the other, Well, brother so-and-so, where do you baptize your people? Well, I baptize them 
uh, uh, I baptize them on the head. Well, that's not good enough. You've got to put them right under the water. Well, I'll tell you what. Do you baptize them on the feet? Yes, I do. Do you baptize them up to the knees? Yes, I baptize them up to the knees, says the Baptist. Do you baptize them up to the waist? Yes, I baptize them up to the waist, up to the shoulders, up to the neck, up to the head. Yes, I baptize them up to the head. Well, brother, that's where I baptize them too, on the head. Now, we laugh at this sort of thing. And we know, many of us, all of, many of us know all kinds of religious jokes like this. Uh, like the other joke about the Baptist saying, you know, I finally come to the conclusion that the Presbyterians uh, uh, will, uh, that the Presbyterians will definitely uh, be the first up out of the graves on resurrection day because the Bible says the dead in Christ will rise first. And we find these things very amusing. Apparently you haven't gotten the, the, the joke. <laughs> Good. <A> delayed laugh. <laughs> or I should perhaps say bad. But you know, when all is said and done, we need to ask ourselves whether all this goofing around about the ordinances of Almighty God, about holy baptism and the holy communion, no matter how we understand it and differ from one another, is this really pleasing to Almighty God? Do we always realize that the ordinance of Holy Communion and the ordinance of Holy Baptism is not given to us to titivate us, but it is given to us to point us to the painful and shameful death of our Lord Jesus on the cross. That's what you and I should be reminded of, my friend when we see or discuss baptism and the Lord's table. And oh, when we consider it from this perspective, we see that we are undone. And that with all of our goofing around and taking pokes at one another and jesting with one another's partial understanding, we have directly or indirectly been breaking this third commandment. And then, of course, the third commandment also requires that the word of God, the word of God, be holily and reverently used. The word of God. I have taught at Christian colleges, and I have known a professor at the Christian college that went around with these Bible jokes. Um, who was the shortest man in the Bible? And so... Bildad the shoe height because he was just as high as a shoe shoe height you see and uh, and so on and we all know these kind of flippant remarks about the word of God no uh, or, or what was taught at a Presbyterian Sunday school that I heard about not too long ago child came back from Sunday school and uh, so the parents said well what did you learn at Sunday school well, I learned, the Sunday school teacher told us that, that uh, Adam was the fastest runner that the world has ever seen. Really? How did you figure that? Oh, the Sunday school teacher said because he was first in the human race. Ha, ha, ha. Everybody laughs. But I ask you, is that using the name of God and his word reverently, particularly in a Sunday school? Well, as a result of that, 
this family withdrew their child from the Sunday school and that child is not going back to that Sunday school because the parents believe that they can do a better job and I'm sure they can than that particular teacher did on that particular occasion in that particular Sunday school and so even if we're all guilty of this oh friend will you not ask yourself whether you have and continue to treat the word of God the holy Bible with the reverence which it deserves I know congregational preacher once said to me he'd become a modernist he said I'm sure pleased I've gotten out of this fundamentalistic ghetto why do you know he told me when I was growing up my father who was a preacher told me don't ever put any other book on top of the Bible the Bible is a holy book and then this man the son turned to me and said how ridiculous why shouldn't I put another book on top of the Bible well one could perhaps say that his father had uh, not taken sufficient pains to explain his problem to his son and one could perhaps even say that his father uh, was too strict but the thing that hurt me as a young student while being told this story uh, by this son who had now become a preacher was his obvious disdain for the Bible it may well be that the Bible is a book a book among other books but it's a very special book and it's not the kind of book that we should put our bare foot on I don't think and I don't think it's the kind of book that if accidentally we put another book on top of it and if that action offends someone who brings it to our attention I don't believe we should say ah oh, so what it's only a book I had a very good friend uh, the son of one of the most famous Christian leaders in the whole world if I were to mention his name to you tonight and the father I know well too you'd, you'd all have heard of him I think and this son got hold of my Bible and he says that Bible isn't this book this King James Version and he picked up my Bible and he threw it on the floor he says the word of God is not the English translation it's the original Greek said to this friend of mine he had been my friend up to that moment I said pick up my Bible I said no forgive me pick up the word of God he says that's not the word of God I said pick it up or get out of my house and I knew he said to him get <laughs> expletive deletive out of my house and that ruptured that friendship between us and today that man who was a Christian youth leader is divorced from his wife and he denies the creation account and he's thoroughly compromised all the way down the line and has all but broken his famous father's heart I tell you we need to be reverent when we deal with this blessed book and I will not be put off by those Parthians and by those neo-evangelicals who accuse me of worshipping the book. I know in whom I have believed. The one who wrote the book. The one whom this book, this copy of the book points me to. But because he, my Savior, wrote it. Because he, my Savior, has given it to me. 
and given me that great privilege. Oh, may I never put my foot on it. Oh, may I never throw it on the floor. And I want to confess to you tonight that about a month after I was saved, I read something in this book which made me so angry. I picked it up and I threw it against the wall. And then when I realized what I had done, I sank down on my knees and asked my heavenly Father to forgive me. And as I think back on it, it grieves me. It grieves me to think that I, as a child of God, could have done that. And I'm not comforted by these Bartian theologians who so, say, Oh, don't worry about it. It was just a book. It's a message in the book that counts. It's just a book like any other book. No, my friend, this book is the book of books. The book of all books. The breath of God, the Holy Spirit has breathed into its blessed pages. And we are to treat this book about our Savior with reverence and with respect for we are not to take the name of the Lord our God in vain well now our catechism goes on to say that we are also required to treat the name of God holily and reverently in prayer I once went to a camp and there was this dear sweet pietistic girl at this camp it was at a beach mission and whenever she prayed, it went something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you, we hear Lord Jesus, because Lord Jesus, this Lord Jesus, and that Lord Jesus, and please Lord Jesus, for your dear son's name sake, amen. I wonder whether she realized what she was saying. The word of God does not ask us normally to address our prayers to the Lord Jesus at all. I'd like to invite you to study the theology of prayer from Genesis to Revelation and you will find with only two exceptions that prayer is always directed either to the triune God or to God the Father. True Christian prayer is directed to God the Father. It's prayed for the sake of the Son, Jesus Christ, and it's to be prayed in the power of the Holy Spirit. But apart from those two very short prayers, the dying prayer of Stephen, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, or the last words of the Bible, Amen, even so, yea, come Lord Jesus, which are really a telegram prayer, perhaps even an abbreviated way of telling us uh, just the heart of the gist of a much larger prayer which actually was prayed at that time. Apart from that, you will find in the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prayers in Scripture the prayer is to be addressed to God the Father. And so this, this girl, here she is praying to Jesus Christ and then asking Jesus Christ to grant her prayer in the name of Jesus Christ's dear Son. Now I'm not a Mormon that believed that Jesus Christ had a son that he married Mary and Martha polygamously. But you see, she had confused in her prayer the Father and the Son. And she'd done this because she was not careful in listening to what she was saying in her prayer. And we all get guilty of this. Believe me, if you're ever a professor of theology, where you are praying and leading and advising and exegeting the Bible, and discussing it and being asked for opinions on it at times I confess you may open a, a class with prayer and within one minute you may have forgotten that you've done it because you're doing it so often and we need to be careful 
we need to be careful. Sometimes, I admit it, in my home, we always pray and ask God to bless our food before we eat. But there are occasions when I'll ask the blessing, and then I'll be talking about something uh, 60 miles to the dozen, and then I'll turn to my wife and I'll say, Did we pray? My wife will say, You yourself asked the Lord's blessing a minute ago, and then I feel like a heel. Was I really concentrated when I said that to my God? You see, we must be careful. We must be careful when we pray to our God to know what it is that we're praying. And, oh, friend, we're all guilty, and we all need the blood of the Lord Jesus every second. And then, too, we are required to make oaths. It says here that for me, to take the name of God properly, I am required to take oaths. Now, there are some Christians who think it is wrong for a Christian ever to take an oath, such as in court, to put our hand on a Bible, and to swear, that, to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help us God. There are those who say, no, this is inappropriate. Because a Christian should, they say, tell the truth at all times, which is true enough. Therefore, they say, which is untrue, a Christian should never need or be asked to swear by the name of God if that Christian's word is being taken, uh, is being questioned. But I am convinced as I read the Bible, as I see that our Saviour took oaths and swore, as I see that the Apostle Paul took oaths and swore, uh, as where he says, I am an apostle, I lie not, I swear, I tell the truth in Christ Jesus and in other places, and that where one's word is questioned on an important matter, uh, that it is right and proper to take the oath even with our hand on the Bible to bring honor to our Heavenly Father. But then the matter of the oath must be important. Did you, Richard Flynn, uh, see your neighbor uh, kill his wife at uh, 2 a.m. Uh, last week? Yes, I did. The neighbor says, He's a liar! Who else saw it? Nobody. Well, says the court, Richard, will you put your hand on the Bible and solemnly swear to the truth of what you've just alleged? He should do it. Bring glory to God by it. But now, if two people are walking down the road and said, hmm, a lot of dew on the grass this morning. Yeah. Yeah, well, the uh, grass is kind of wet. I wonder whether it's dew or I wonder whether it rained. Oh, no, I know it rained. It was, I think I heard it rain softly at 1 a.m. Oh, it looks like dew to me. And then suddenly the guy says, listen, I tell you it was raining at 1 a.m. And then they start a fight as to whether the grass is wet because it rained at 1 a.m. the previous morning or whether it was dew. And then someone says, well, listen, give me a Bible and I'll swear to you by Almighty God that it was raining. That is inappropriate. Because honestly, it doesn't really matter how the grass got wet, does it? Whether it got dewed on or whether it got rained on, it's not a matter of murder and of life and death. And so when we take the oath, we are to confine it to matters of grave moment. And we are to be solemn and sober in our oath-taking. But we're to take it. And then the commandment goes on to say something of particular interest to Australians. I don't know about New Zealanders. But I'm told Australians are the world's greatest gamblers. 
and I'm sure that I've seen more gambling in Australia since I moved there than I have in any other Western country up till now. There may be exceptions like Monte Carlo, I suppose, but then I haven't been to Monte Carlo. Um, we're told that we are required from time to time to participate in the lot, the holy lot, but we are never to take the lot in vain. Now, what is a lot? Well, a lot is when you do something because you cannot determine the will of God in any other way. Now, you remember in Acts chapter 1, when Judas went and hanged himself, that they had a vacancy for an apostle to take the place of Judas. And Peter and uh, the others of the eleven that were left after Judas took his life, um, narrowed down the choice uh, of the apostle to two apparently equally well-qualified candidates, namely uh, Barsabas and Matthias. Both of them seemed to be good men. Both of them had walked and talked with the apostles and with the Lord Jesus before his, uh, his uh, resurrection and his ascension. And they could not in any other way figure out which of the two God would have them appoint in the place of Judas to fill this one vacancy. And you recall what we read at the end of Acts chapter 1. And so Peter apparently puts two straws or two pieces of paper, one with the name of Barsabas and the other with the name of Matthias into a hat and shakes it up and then says brethren let us pray thou who O Lord who knowest the heart of man now show to us from which of these two men thou hast chosen for this office amen and then they drew one of the two lots and of course it was Matthias now that is appropriate that's not a sin because there was no other way that they could discern the will of God which of course they first had to exhaust they resorted to the lot but let me tell you there's a vast difference between that and backing a horse in a race or uh, shaking dice for money or even not for money or as in my case playing poker I put myself largely through university by becoming a poker champion studying it carefully and weighing up the odds this is not pleasing to God that is an unholy use of the lot and so too believe me when you go looking for a wife you don't get a daisy and say she loves me she loves me not she loves me she loves me not ah she loves me and then promptly go and propose to the girl or write the name of three or four girlfriends uh, uh, on the petals of a flower and then twirl it round and then pull off Mary and Angela and Priscilla and Hyacinth oh it's Primrose ah oh, Primrose the Lord has revealed to me that you're to be my wife fortunately Primrose is godly and she says well God certainly hasn't revealed to me yet that you're to be my husband I'm telling you it's not funny to see the way in which some people take some very major decisions in their life in this kind of a way you know there are even those evangelicals 
who have no idea what they go and some of them have met them the man says you know I've no idea what I'm going to preach on when I get onto the pulpit but the Holy Spirit will tell me and he grabs his Bible or even the pulpit Bible when he gets there eeny meeny miny more and then he promptly starts preaching this says reformed ethics is that horrible sin known as sortilegia biblica and there was at least one very well known evangelist who was guilty of this sort of thing that is not the way that God would have his word proclaimed when I was at seminary we had a real weird guy breeze into the seminary and uh, we all asked him uh, seeing he was so weird could we ask uh, why you think that God would have you trained to be uh, to be um, a minister and he says well you see I was on the farm one day and we hadn't rained for a while and I, uh, it, w it was difficult to stay on the farm and so I, I went into my bedroom and I, I, I just opened the Bible and it fell open in the book of Judges and he says the Lord spoke to me no I said what did the Lord say he read some very obscure text I can't remember what it was but something I think about a fight between uh, the children of Benjamin and the children of Israel something to that effect but somehow from this text he derived the information that God immediately wanted him to drop everything on the farm and go to the seminary and he says isn't that wonderful I can just remember I said well if you'll excuse me I really think I'd better go now but I wasn't the slightest bit surprised at all when two months later this fellow did the same thing again and disappeared from the seminary thank God like a comet and I don't know where he went after that but you, you run into these people who instead of studying the word of God from Genesis to Revelation which they should do so that any time when they're not expected it they can be asked their view on a thing or what they're going to do and then the, a whole vast uh, uh, treasure box opens up to them hundreds of Bible texts that make them clear to them beyond a shadow of doubt that this is what they must do no it's eeny meeny miny mo the Bible falls open and they rip some text clean out of its context and apply it to themselves in a way that no one else on this earth could possibly see that that text has got anything to say to them and this becomes a directive for their life oh I tell you thou shalt not take the name or the attributes or the word or the sacraments or the Bible texts of the Lord thy God in vain well now what sins are forbidden in the third commandment the sins forbidden in the third commandment are the not using of God's name as required if you see a murder and you go to court and you are asked to put your hand on the Bible and swear by in the name of Almighty God that you did indeed see that murder taking place you should not be sanctimonious say oh I'm a Christian your honor I tell the truth at all times I don't have to put my hand on the Bible if you do not use the name of God on those rare occasions when you're required to then you have broken this I must admit as I gave you some examples a little earlier of, of what not to do <laughs> I asked myself 
whether I would not myself be breaking this commandment by giving you unmistakable examples uh, of what I think is prohibited. But then I realized, no, uh, I think perhaps I need to say what I mean to illustrate the point, because it's not me breaking the commandment, it's me illustrating what we should not do, it seems to me. We must then use the name of God as required. And the sin forbidden is in not using the name of God. You see, it's not an optional matter as to whether we take an oath about a serious matter when we're asked or invited to do so. We must then take the oath and swear by the name of God. And it's a sin for us not to do so. It's also a sin for us to abuse the name of God or to use it in an ignorant fashion, a vain fashion, an irreverent fashion, a profane fashion, or a superstitious fashion. And it's not just Roman Catholics that superstitiously use the name of God or the Virgin Mary or, 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 or whatever, uh, sometimes even calling their own children Jesus. Many of the Portuguese call their children Jesus. I even met one Portuguese that uh, called his son Maria, Maria, after the Virgin Mary, calling a boy by a girl's name because that was the name of the mother of the Lord Jesus. Uh, uh, to me, this comes perilously close to superstition. And by the way, when we're in these forbidden actions, I think we also need to realize that using words uh, with a sexual connotation, such as four-letter verbs, slang verbs, um, being abbreviations of referring to the act of sexual intercourse, for example, we need to see that this is not just foul language in terms of the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, but it's also breaking this third commandment. Why so? Well, because God alone is the one who legitimately brings two people together to have sexual intercourse within marriage and often to produce life which God alone can produce as a result of that. And when we use these kind of words, the psychology of it is that we are ourselves assuming that we have the power to create life. That we are going to fix someone and destroy them well, then we are giving it an even more perverted meaning. And so too, when Lord, whatever his name is, comes back from the party, and this I'll give you an example of, we had a thundering good time at the party last night. Really? Can Lord so-and-so really cause the weather to thunder? Is that not God's prerogative? And, of course, the Dutch language is full of words referring to the weather and the thunder and the lightning, uh, which are often used as expletive deleted, but which it is inappropriate to do because God alone sends the thunder and the lightning. And, therefore, we should avoid these kind of words, not only in polite conversation, but in any conversation, however ingrained it may have become into our vocabulary. We need to get rid of the gollies <laughs> and the goodness sakes 
of our vocabulary because they are corruptions of the name of God or the attribute of God and we sin against God and we take his holy name in vain when we do this if any man speaks says Peter let him speak as it were the words of God let your yes be yes let your no be no said Jesus and anything more than this is from the devil so then we are forbidden to be superstitious wickedly to use God's titles attributes ordinances works by blasphemy or by perjury if you do put your hand on a Bible or even if you don't but you swear to God that what you are saying is true but you're not telling the truth you sir you madam have perjured yourself you have committed a horrible sin in the sight of almighty God you have called God to be your witness however light heartedly you may have done it saying as true as God I was at the party last night or I wasn't there you've taken an oath in saying that and you have perjured yourself if what you have alleged is not absolutely truthful all sinful cursings before we rain down uh, blood and thunder on our enemies and curse them and I do believe it is appropriate that we Christians should at times curse people and this may be news <laughs> in our modern church we're told oh we've got to love people God is love and we must never curse people but if you read the Bible you'll see there is such a thing as the holy curse but I'll tell you before you and I start cursing people and for that matter before we start blessing them either we need to do a great deal of prayer that our curse or our blessing is pleased to God pleasing to God you will remember the time when two of Jesus' disciples were about ready to call down the thunder and lightning on some people who had not at that point received the word of God and to blot them out Lord let the fire fall down from heaven and blot them out and Jesus says you don't know you don't know what kind of a spirit it is that is in you so we need to be very careful about cursing other people but we also need to be careful about blessing people I do hope that you don't automatically say goodbye to the Jehovah Witness that comes banging on your door why not? because the word goodbye is an abbreviation of God be with you it's a blessing and if an enemy of Jesus Christ a, a real heretic comes banging at the door don't say goodbye before you realize what you're saying that you want the blessing of God to rest upon that enemy of redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ you say well what will the neighbors think of me if they hear perhaps in Australasia it doesn't really matter so much what the neighbors think of you but it often does in America particularly in the deep south what will the neighbors think of me if they hear that I didn't say goodbye we love you the Lord bless you to this person don't say it don't say it if he is not worthy of the blessing of God but just terminate the conversation perhaps with a smile and that's it so we break this commandment when we sinfully curse people or make sinful oaths, vows or lots 
And of course, exhibit A of a sinful lot is gambling, where we take something that should be used very, very rarely, and only when there's no other way to ascertain a future course of action, a holy lot, and when we indulge in it left, right, and center for the most picky of reasons without ever praying. Did you ever meet a gambler who really prayed to Jesus Christ as opposed to curse Jesus Christ when he was in the casino? Of course not. What about violating our oaths and our vows? If lawful, if we have made a lawful oath, we displease Almighty God if we violate that oath or that vow. And you know, getting married is a lawful oath and vow, and getting engaged is a lawful oath or vow. And I am very perturbed with the ease with which a lot of people break off an engagement today. An engagement is a solemn oath and a vow to marry your fiancé within a reasonable period of time. And a hundred years ago, if that engagement were broken for anything but uh, the gravest and acceptable reasons, the party who didn't do the breaking off and who has been inconvenienced by it, especially if the girl could sue the other party uh, for a large monetary sum. I pray to God we may get back to that stage when these ungodly men who get engaged to a girl just so that they can sleep with her before the marriage, that when they break off that engagement to the girl after they have gotten her virginity from her, and that's the only reason why they got engaged to her, not to marry her, I pray to Almighty God the courts may become godly and that they will sustain the action brought by that girl to rip the very shirt off that man's back. And I mean every word that I'm saying. So, we should not violate our oaths and our vows such as an oath or a vow of engagement if lawful. Nor should we fulfill a vow if after having made the vow we discover it to be unlawful thinking of some of these Masonic oaths, if I ever disclose any of the secrets of this temple, then may my, to my tongue be ripped out by its roots, may my, may, may my heart be buried in the sand at high tide, or whatever. This is an ungodly vow. It's ungodly in one of two ways. Either the person making that vow really meant what he said, when he said it, in which case he was inviting everybody else, hearing him say it, to murder him, if he ever trips up. Or conversely, he didn't mean what he said. In other words, he lied when making that vow. So he can take his pick as to in which of those two ways he made that ungodly vow. But you see, if you come to Christ after making that kind of vow, you should not regard yourself as bound by that vow because an ungodly vow, once you've discovered it to be ungodly, should not bind you. Sin we may not let bind us. It should be cast off. It should be broken so that we become free men in Christ Jesus. Ungodly vows. Or what about murmuring at and quarreling at and curiously prying into and misapplying God's decrees. You're a pastor. Could you tell me, Reverend, whether I'm elect or whether I'm reprobate? How can I know I'm either one of the elect or I'm not one of the elect? So if I'm elect, I'll get to heaven. If I'm not elect, I won't get to heaven. 
and so what's the point of me trying curiously prying into the uh, the, the decrees of God uh, our presbytery at the moment is um, being confronted with all kinds of very difficult questions about genetic engineering uh, whether uh, artificial insemination by donor by husband in vitro fertilization uh, that is conception of a human being outside of a woman's womb in a test tube is or is not permissible or whatever and now of course we've reached the stage where we can determine the sex of a baby before its birth now I'm certainly in favor of treating an unborn baby that seems to have a congenital defect which defect can be corrected before the birth or greatly improved upon but I really don't know that I can honestly see the importance of trying to determine the sex of a baby before it's born. Is this not a curious prying into God's providence? I mean, is one, if you determine that the baby that you're expecting is male and not female, you're going to abort the baby because you wanted a daughter and not a son or the other way around? What do you want to know for? Why can't you patiently wait as long as the baby's healthy? Why have you got to pry into this, into this providence of Almighty God? Some of you may think at this point, I'm really weird. But look, we are not to pry into the providence of God. Don't visit fortune tellers and gaze into crystal balls as to whether you're going to be a millionaire in five years' time or whether you're going to marry a blonde or a brunette or whatever it is wait until God reveals this to you and let me tell you these things are not so innocent when I was a pastor many years ago I can remember a Lutheran come to me who didn't have he didn't have the, the courage to go to his own pastor I said what's the problem he says well you see I went to this carnival about ten years ago and my girlfriend and I were there and we saw this fortune teller and we went into a tent gypsy whatever her name was and she gazed into this crystal ball and she came out with this long rigmarole of what would happen in three years time and what would happen in five years time and what would happen in seven years time and from the first five years was all good and the last five years of the ten year prediction she made was all bad and it got worse and worse and he says eight years has gone and it's come out exactly the way in which this woman predicted and it came out well for five years and now we're in the second period and it's going back to worse and the next thing that she's predicted ten years ago which has not yet come to pass is my own death in a couple of months and he says I can't sleep at night I'm so scared what shall I do I tell you there are things which we should not want to know the revealed things are for us and our children that which God has shown us in his revelation of the Bible but the secret things including the day of your death including the sicknesses that you think you will get they are for God and for him alone when I was a little boy of nine I had a Latin mistress but she was also a fortune teller and one day she says you've got a very interesting palm oh she says you've got a long lifeline she says but I perceive that when you're 60 you're going to have a very very serious accident I've never forgotten this I'm 47 this year and here I was a little boy of 9 or so she says when you're 60 you're going to have a horrible accident yeah but I think I'm not sure but I think you recover from it and then you 
live on in broken health after that for 20 or 30 years or whatever. Well, so now what am I to expect? Another 13 years of good health and then inevitably to be involved in an accident and after that to be some kind of a cripple for 30 years after that until I finally pass on age 90. Fortunately, I have a God in heaven. He has predestined my birth and my death and my health and my only comfort in life and death, folks. Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer one, is not what some fortune teller or, or hair-brained uh, tea-leaf reader may have told me at a circus, but that I am not my own, but I belong to my precious Savior, Jesus Christ without whose say so I cannot as much as breathe or move and I will trust him in life and in death and in sickness and in health and in fair weather and in foul knowing that whatever my God ordains is right because he ordained it hallowed be his name praise the name of Jehovah and not to take that name in vain well, there's a lot more that could be said, but perhaps we should stop at this point and see if there are any questions and perhaps start the, the coffee going. Are there any questions? Yes. The example in the Bible is, uh, I couldn't find it, where they checked, uh, made a vow to God of something, and he ended up coming back. Oh, the first person he saw when he came back. Oh, yeah, Jethro. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Jephthah, Jephthah, at least, yes. Is that. Uh, well, yes, what's the, what, what's the question about it? Well, um, I'm trying to find it. You said you should not keep. Um, uh, that's, a very, that's a very interesting case. What, what Jephthah did say, you recall, question regards Jephthah, uh, he uh, made a vow in leading the armies of Gilead against the enemy that if God would give them the victory, then he, Jephthah, would bring as an offering to God, and the Hebrew is a little obscure there, I think, but he would bring as an offering to God the first thing, object, that he saw when he returned home to his place, his farm. He shouldn't ever have made that vow. He should have vowed to God to bring, as a burnt offering to God, the first animal that he encountered. You see, that would have been all right. But now he put it too broadly. In other words, he didn't think deeply enough before he made that vow. And then you remember God gave him the victory and he got home and to his immeasurable sadness his own daughter his only child was it not came running towards him daddy and remembered he'd made this vow and at this point the exegetes differ from one another some of them say that he actually burned his daughter as a burnt offering regarding himself as being morally obligated to sacrifice her to God others say and personally I think they're right he did not burn his daughter but he had promised a whole sacrifice to God 
and so what was then done and apparently with the approval of God and this was permissible apparently but this was certainly not what Jephthah was thinking about when he made the vow that she was to be as dead as one who would never produce life from her womb and so what seems to me to have been the case she spent what was it a month or two with the virgins of Gilead on the mountains mourning her childlessness it seems to me and then she went off and seems to have dwelt in solitude for the rest of her life however long it was uh, living in relative isolation and in total childlessness it seems to me then that the vow that Jephthah made which was a silly vow which he hadn't thought through properly was executed with the approval of his daughter who wanted to do what she felt was right in the situation by her offering herself totally as a living sacrifice to God that would as it were slowly die and not produce life now it's a very difficult thing but believe me you won't find any other theologian who will give you a more satisfactory explanation than that because I've gone into the exegesis as carefully as I know how now the question further is when Jephthah saw his daughter running toward him should he have tried to go through with the vow at all in any sense of the word that's a good question in other words should he really have said well I can't burn you girl but I'm going to have to ask you never to get married and to live in a cave the rest of your life or whatever and that's a more difficult question to follow personally I think that if he had been thinking about an animal when he made the oath that probably he he should just have confessed his sin to the Lord and that was that but at any rate we must see this that the girl was willing and I think it's very much to her credit that she regarded the honor of her father's name and the uh, seriousness of oath taking as such in such a serious light that she did the one thing that I believe she could do without rescinding or breaking the oath to try and give execution to the oath in that particular situation yes well I think that a godly vow uh, will never be the kind of bargaining uh, of uh, Lord uh, I'm not going to serve you unless you do this for me but if you do do this for me then I will give you X number of dollars that's bargaining however if you if you uh, make a godly vow to God it would go different to that it would go something like this dear God I am not worthy to be your child but no but uh, I didn't realize you were asking for God oh, well well let me just answer this first and then perhaps we can apply it to Jephthah so you can't say Lord I'm only going to serve you uh, I will only do A B and C for you if you will first do X Y and Z for me and if you do not do X Y and Z for me then Lord get lost that's bargaining <laughs> but on the other hand I think there is a godly vow and I made one when the Lord saved my soul in a gold mine on the 25th or the 28th of November 1955 I said Lord I'm not worthy to be your child and if I die in this gold mine I die 
by your grace as your child and I'll go straight to heaven on account of what Christ did for me and Lord if you want to take my life this day so be it but Lord if it is your will to get me out of this mine alive I vow to dedicate the rest of my life to thee and in thy service Lord as a Christian lawyer as a Christian politician as a Christian preacher or whatever and I was so stupid then I was 21 I didn't even know a single verse of the Bible other than what I'd just been reading a few weeks earlier now I would think that's a godly vow uh, I don't believe I was bargaining with God because I didn't say you've got to get me out of this mine uh, if the Lord wanted to take my life well then that's fine if, on the other hand if he wants to keep me alive longer the least I can do for what he has done for me in Christ Jesus is to serve him in whatever way he may show me that he wants him to do now in relation to Jephthah again the matter is difficult um, no I don't think we can say that Jephthah was bargaining with God in, in the bad sense I think that his, his motive was sincere and legitimate if God had given him defeat in battle I think he would still have gone on serving God he was a godly man but in the making of his vow and in making that vow it was godly for him to make a vow but he was uncareful in the framing of that vow and precisely because he was a godly man he had problems having made that vow with uncareful language in knowing what to do about it when he saw not an animal come toward him which is what he expected but his dearly beloved daughter all right any more questions or how's that getting it's getting on yeah this reformation audio track is a production of stillwater's revival books swrb makes thousands of classic reformation resources available free and for sale in audio video and printed formats it is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. 
For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.